I'm actually a southerner. Well, I'm from the south of England, London, so I guess that makes me a southerner. Except I probably lived in the south longer than most of you folks. I came here in 1972, so I guess I'm a double southerner. Like I'm a dual citizen, actually, so I can vote legally. Okay. What I want to uh, share today actually mirrors some of the themes that uh, Pastor Brad has been teaching in Daniel. So, in one sense, you probably already heard it. But uh, recently I've been studying in the Old Testament the book of Job. I love that book. And also in the New Testament, Romans. I do an Old Testament book, New Testament book. Um, and as I was reading through Job and through Romans, and especially when I got to Romans 8, I realized how, um, in several respects, they really complement one another. And I'd like to look at today three complementary issues in Job and Romans. Now, I'm not going to open up Job and have you read through Job today, although it's got some great morality poetry. But I would like to say a word about Job, and I will be referring back to particular verses in Job to show you these complementary themes, but we're going to spend most of our time in, in, uh, in Romans and in the New Testament. First of all, I'd like to overcome, or at least put to rest, some ideas I've met among Christians that Job was a fictitious character and this is a great morality story, poem actually. Job was a real person, as were his friends. They probably lived around the time of the patriarchs, which would have been likely. We don't know when Job lived, but it looks like, or probably, possibly, I would say, around the time of the patriarchs, 1500 BC. Why do I say that he's a real character? Well, there's a number of reasons outside of the Bible, but from the Bible, two places tell me this. Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel says, and he lists three men together, Noah, uh, Daniel, Daniel, and also Job. And he said, these are righteous men. That's an Old Testament. So we don't usually question Noah or Daniel. Why would we question Job as a real person? Then James actually uh, mentions Job and says he's an example of steadfastness to us. There are other things outside of the Bible, but those two to me say this guy was a real guy and his friends were real people. Okay. Well, let me examine three issues that come up in Job that are problematic for people often. And I think in Romans uh, 8, 28 through 39, we'll get some insight into these issues in Job. So if you turn with, to Romans 8, 28 through 39, if you've got your Bible, that's where we're going to be heading. Father God, we ask that uh, you would op open our eyes to see the truth in your word today, that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive that truth and our actions to put them into the truths, into, uh, 
into action, and that, Lord, we would apply these to our lives as we go throughout this life. And I thank you, Father, that your word is true, is faithful, and trustworthy, and that uh, we can totally depend upon it. Amen. So let me read this very familiar passage to, I'm sure, many of you from Romans chapter 8. And we're jumping in at uh, verse 28, and we'll go through 39. This is from the ESV, with the nod to Brad there. I usually use the NASB, but like Richard, <laughs> but there you go. Okay. And we know, this is verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The three issues that come up, there are others, but three issues that come up in Job, I'd like to look at here. The first issue is cosmic conflicts. Job chapter 1, verse 6, sets the stage for a cosmic conflict. Because it says this, The sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came. Sounds like Satan wasn't invited, like a bad penny that shows up, but he was there. Now, last week we saw in Daniel the same concept, the throne room of God. Okay, We're talking about the throne room of God with the uh, angels and saints, uh, the angels and elders and whatever all around, okay? And Satan comes, and this sets up a cosmic conflict. Because God says to Job, God says to Job, uh, sorry, God says to Satan, have you regarded Job? And God calls Job blameless, upright, and God-fearing. Job 1.1. So we know from the very start of the book that Job is blameless, upright, and God-fearing. Well, what does Satan say? Oh, he's that way because you prospered him. 
That's the claim. And this sets up Job's trials because God, God gives permission for Satan to remove all Job's blessings, family, wealth, and eventually, second time around, even his health. And then the question now is, throughout the rest of Job, whether Job's response to this will prove God or will prove Satan right. Now, what do we learn from Job's trials and from Romans 8, 37 and 38? Let me read that, 37 and 38. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Also, look at verse 35. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword separate us from the love of God? Human trials and tests involve cosmic conflicts. Notice in verse 38 it says, powers, angels. Ephesians 6.12 makes it even clearer. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. When we go through trials, it's not just a matter of us at the worldly level. There are cosmic things going on. And we should always bear that in mind, that we're part of it, like Job was, a cosmic conflict. Even the Satan, even the, even the, um, the disciples were attacked by Satan. In Luke 22, Jesus says to the disciples, but especially to Peter, Satan demanded, that's an interesting word, Satan demanded to, to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Satan demands of God. But even in demanding, does God give permission? God is still in control, even though Satan is an arrogant whatever. Um, so, these human trials and tests do have cosmic ramifications. Now, the second thing is, through Christ, if you look in verse 37, through Christ we have the power to overcome and conquer these trials, like Job did eventually. Okay? And thirdly, what we can learn from Romans and from Job is that God sets boundaries. This should give us help, hope when we go through trials and difficulties. As in Daniel, all cosmic and human forces are on God's leash, and they only act with his permission. So that's the first theme that comes through Daniel, is this cosmic conflict. A second theme that really does run through uh, Daniel and is a, is, a, is a major issue even today, and that is the theme of suffering. 
suffering on this earth. Job says in Job 9.22, Job says this, he, that is God, destroys both the blameless and the wicked in this life, essentially. God destroys both the blameless and the wicked. Hmm. Now, let's get to his so-called friends. Uh, I think they sort of were friends, but very misguided friends. The friends, when they came before him, came in some sort of sympathy, and they sat down for like seven days with him and kept quiet and sort of empathized with him. But then they started to try to figure out why Job was suffering all this terrible stuff. And pretty much they knew, or at least they thought they knew. Because what the friends claim is that God always judges the wicked in this life. Note that. They believe that God always judges the wicked in this life, and the righteous, the good, basically prosper. What does that sound like? I think that's an early version of the health and wealth prosperity gospel to me, Frank, 1500 BC. <laughs> um, to me, it's a little naive, but that's their argument throughout Job, to Job. And what do they conclude from this? Well, if God always punishes the wicked in this life, Job, who maintained that he was blameless, and I'll explain that in a second, you are not owning up to doing something terribly wrong because God wouldn't hit you like this. He would be prospering you, and he's not prospering you now, so you did something really, really bad. Job, on the other hand, correctly says, God allows both the righteous and the wicked to suffer. Now, note here, there is no agnosticism, there is no atheism, there is even no deism from either the friends or from Job. They all believe that God is responsible for this. They differ in why. Okay? And so they accuse him of doing something terribly wrong, and they keep going on and on and on about it in nice poetry, but on and on about it. And so these torment Job, these accusations, rather than comfort him. I'm not quite sure why they called Job's comforters. Uh, it has to be irony, because they were no way comforters for Job. From that we learn this. When you're dealing with someone who is suffering for whatever reasons, half-truths, which is what they were throwing out, or even complete truths, which they also did give, complete truths misapplied are not the way to comfort those who are suffering. Now, not all his family got wiped out. He was left with his wife. Good? Job 2.9, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Really encourage her. Really encourage her. Now, who does Paul agree with? The friends or with Job? Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And now we have a list of things that potentially would do that. 
Okay? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. No. Paul is a realist as well as a, someone who understands God's working. The righteous do suffer potentially in this life. And uh, his friends are wrong there. They're just totally naive. But then this comes to the question of how can Paul state at the beginning of this uh, passage, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, though who are called according to his purpose. How can God state that tribulation, persecution, etc., 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 work together for good. And I think Romans 8.35 gives us in some insight into how this good comes from trials. First of all, we've already looked down at verse 37, which is basically that we can be conquerors, and we can know that we're conquerors when we overcome trials. That, I think, is a good thing that can come out of trials. But more importantly, look at verses uh, 29 and 30. This is really a key issue here. All things work together for good. And one of the main reasons that they are working together for good is for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's what these trials are doing. They are conforming us, potentially, to the image of his son. Why? Those at the very end of 30. And, in, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this is heading towards glorification for us, these trials. So that's two reasons the benefits from trials. One, they make us conquerors. And two, they conform us to the image of Christ, which is going to eventually lead to our glorification when Christ returns. James, in chapter 1, says, basically, trials produce faith. Faith leads to endurance, and endurance leads to maturity. So James says we should be joyful, not because we're unhappy and uncomfortable or whatever, but because of the results of these trials. Okay? That's what we should be joyful for, even though the trials do not bring happiness and comfort necessarily. Now, there's something more important than this um, in terms of these trials, and that is shown in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Most importantly, these trials are for God's glory. Let me read John 9, 1 through 3. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. I'm sure you know this story. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? Harking back to the idea that sin produces bad things, which it does, but not always. Okay, at least not in this life. Uh, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, 
It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Difficult passage to swallow for human beings. And when we think about Job, Job's steadfast faith, as James called it, what did that do? God was glorified by it, and Satan was proven wrong. Okay? So he had steadfast faith through these trials that glorified God and proved Satan wrong. Now, I say he had steadfast faith. We hear this, the patience of Job is a proverb. I don't know where that came from. If you read Job, Job was not a patient man. He was a man that was suffering, and he was really banging on God's door to get some answers to this suffering. He was not a patient man, but he was steadfast and he was faithful. I just can't figure why people say the patience of Job. If you just read the book and tell me whether he was patient or not. He just didn't sit there and smile and say, give it to me. I mean, <laughs> that's not what happened. But, you know, as we go through, Give those reasons why trials can be positive, good, all things work together for good, still doesn't answer the fundamental question. Why does God use suffering in this way? Surely there must have been a better way. I love God's answer to Job. And to to basically Job's question, because Job is really saying, actually, when he's, he's going through, is, how is this fair, God? How is this fair? The righteous suffer along with the bad, and the bad sometimes don't suffer in this life. They die, but they don't suffer in this life. How is that fair, God? I mean, Job really does get close, close to the mark in questioning God's fairness. Well, as I say, these good things coming out of trials do not get to the basic fundamental question of why trials? Why suffering? I love God's response to Job. It's a response and a mild rebuke. And it comes towards the end of Job when God has his say. It's in Job 38, 1 through 4. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, and said, Who is this that darkens counsels by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And then in the next couple of chapters, 38 and 39, God goes through things that he did in creation and asked questions about, were you here when I did this? How, you know, do you understand why that? And it's actually, there's more about creation story in Job, in those two chapters of Job, than there is in Genesis. We always go to Genesis to talk about the creation story. Job has lots and lots of stuff about creation and what God did in creation. And I actually really like that part because as Richard mentioned, I'm a biologist. <laughs> There's a lot of biology in those two, two chapters there. Um, so, what is Job's response? It's an appropriate response. Job 40, 1 through 3. 
Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. There are things in this life, even though as a scientist I don't like to admit this, there are things in this life that we should humbly recognize are beyond our understanding. And what they require are trust in an omniscient, in the omniscient wisdom, superior wisdom of our God. And that's what Job is saying here. You just can't understand it. And Job agrees. And Job essentially puts his hand over his mouth and stops asking, why is this there? That's hard for us as human beings with our desire to be in control and know everything, but it's the fact of life. The last thing leads us into communion, the last theme. God, at the very beginning, says Job is blameless. Job and his friends repeat this. Not that Job is blameless, but they repeat this concept. Job 9.2, Job says this in Job 9.2, How can a man be in the right before God? How can a man be in the right before God? This is an important theme in Job. Paul, in Romans 8, gives us an answer. This answer brings us to consider the communion table and what is laid before us. The communion table commemorates the fact that God the Father gave up his one and only Son to become sin for us and die for sinners so that we may have salvation despite our lack of merit. And then what does the resurrection do? The resurrection proves that the sacrifice was effective and that allows us to be justified and clothed with Christ's righteousness. Look at Romans 8.30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, basically, Christ's death is paying that penalty for us. And Paul explains this in 32. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And that makes us blameless. Second Corinthians, Paul spells this out even more in uh, uh, chapter 5. For our sake, he, that's Christ, uh, God, sorry, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, when Job says, and God says, Job is blameless, God doesn't claim that Job is sinless. And Job doesn't claim to be sinless. When you read through Job, he's always offering sacrifices for himself and for his family at least at the beginning, before his family died. And also, he talks about the iniquities of my youth. 
Job never claims to be sinless, but he does claim to be blameless. He says, I am not guilty of these things that you are accusing me of. God, has, God in fact, is the one who says, really, Job is blameless and upright. Now, how can Job be blameless and upright? Because of the death of Christ, who took his sins for him. Now you say, that's 1500 BC, Jesus died in um, around 32, 33, somewhere in there, um, AD. How the Dickens can Job be saved through Christ? Well, and people ask this question. Well, think about this. Does time limit God? Time has never limited God. God is outside of time. You know, we talk about 10 dimensions and all sorts of, you know, 11 dimensions and all sorts of things like this. God is outside of these dimensions of time. That doesn't mean to say he doesn't interact in time. He does. Clearly, in Job's case, for a while, it was pretty miserable interaction, really miserable. Um, But God is outside of these time limits. So God is not limited And so Job, a sinner, 1,500 years before Christ died, through the sacrifice of Christ, was justified by faith and declared to be blameless by God himself. Now, Job didn't realize what was happening at that time. We do. You know, Job may have had some vague ideas about sacrifices, which he did do, but he had no idea, I'm sure, that someone was going to die in his stead 1,500 years, whatever, later. Now, note this. Job was declared blameless when? Before the trials, at the very beginning of the book. So Job's response to those where he never cursed God is not the reason he was blameless. Because his blamelessness was given to him by God before those trials. In other words, as with Abraham, his response was not the reason to call him blameless, and our good deeds do not justify us. They didn't justify Job, and they don't justify us. They show whether we really love God. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, Jesus said. But they don't justify us. Only Christ's death and resurrection justifies us. Now, today, similarly, us sinners can also be declared blameless. Sinners can be declared blameless. And that's only by the one who justifies us. God, Yahweh. And our good deeds, like with Job, do not justify us. Now, how do we get, how are we saved? 2,000 years after Christ's death, we look back. Job looked forward, sort of. We look back towards that saving grace of God in the death of Jesus Christ. Now, this table is for sinners. But, but, 
only for sinners who have been declared blameless by the only one who can justify us and call us blameless. So it is for sinners, but it's for sinners that are by God called blameless. This, as you come to the table, is the time to reflect. It's a time to ask forgiveness for recent sins. It's a time to commemorate God's ultimate sacrifice. It's a time to thank him. It's a time to trust God who works all trials together for good. Why? Because they are conforming us to Christ's image. And even more than that, they are all bringing glory to our wonderful Savior and God our Father. Thank you.